0: This is Ingle Radio the podcast. We're working our th- way through the NHL pause and COVID-19 with a very unique episode, one that will deal with a, a great goaltender from the past who's now giving back and doing some goaltending instruction in South Florida. A southpaw, uh, a guy that uh, was as flexible as anybody I've ever seen play the position and has some real unique uh, perspectives on on the game and what he did uh, during the course of his national hockey League career and that is Matthew Garan. and then- Then we will slide over to Michael Lawrence, uh, the wizard uh, on Twitter. Wizard ML is his handle. coaches in Logano in the Swiss Elite League uh, has coached among other people like uh, Elvis Merzlikens from the Columbus Blue Jackets but also has a tie to what uh, is uh, happening right now in the world uh, with the coronavirus as he has uh, been diagnosed and worked his way through uh, that situation he will tell us oh, just what it's like and uh, how it affects you and uh, coming out on the other side of it uh, what uh, advice he has for everybody as uh, we say hello and uh, Darren Millard bringing in Kevin Woodley and David Hutchison from InGoal Magazine. Uh, start with you, Hutch. Uh, everything good, safe? Uh, I'm going to start this uh, every week like this uh, and
1: everybody's healthy? Hard to come up with something original to say here. We're just getting used to each other, having uh, two kids in the house doing school now remotely, as I think we all are. Uh, a lot of adjustments for everybody. and and uh, But at the same time, it's uh, it's a bit of an opportunity for us. I think we're managing to churn out a little bit more than than we do when we're juggling a normal life and running from rink to rink. And I think it's important, uh, in, not just from what we're doing, but for everybody to. We have a little bit of forced extra time on our hands, so can we use that time wisely, Woody? What are you up to? Well, I know Woody's doing. Woody's recovering, but not from the coronavirus, but from
0: his All Star appearance. Uh, Carrying the the weight of yes, our webinar yes. that uh, that was uh, on the air last week, uh, talking about the uh, the Bauer line and a uh, great response from the uh, Ingle Premium uh, viewers and subscribers, as well as uh, some contributions from National Hockey League uh, coaches. So, Woody, uh, how are you feeling coming off of that performance?
2: Yeah, that was that was. You guys know that that was right in my wheelhouse, right? Because I was nervous at the beginning. Because I really hadn't I've never done anything like that before. And so how do you fill what you think is empty air? I didn't know how to check who wanted to talk. I had these Hutch had to teach me five minutes in how to click gallery view. Could only see like three people and there were 30 on the call. So I talked. And I talked. And I talked a little more until it was I heard, awesome. until I finally realized that, oh yeah. These people might be able to you know, add, you know not add something, but they actually might feel like asking questions and speaking up and and man, some of the feedback we got from not just from the pros who joined us, Billy Ranford chipped in, Eddie Kyoto chipped in, Freddie Brathwaite with that like, I don't know, fish net he had for a glove. Uh, Paul <laughs> it Sean, was
0: von von Trapper.
2: yeah right? it was huge. And then uh, Paul Schoenfelder was on. he had to go put his daughter to bed, but uh, Carolina Hurricanes American Hockey League development goalie coach. It was so cool. And, and also our listeners, so many good questions and insight and feedback from, from the people that joined us as members of Premium. I, it, was, it was awesome. And the, my promise to everyone is next time, Hutch, you guys know I won't live up to this promise, but I will talk less now that I know how to operate the machinery, so to speak.
0: No, I think it was a, it was a great initial foray into something that has a massive potential Uh, because while our listeners and our subscribers, uh, enjoyed the podcast and enjoyed the website and, uh, and the in-goal premium side of things, Hutch, there's still
1: another level and a, a real desire for knowledge. Oh, for sure. And I think especially in this time, we're all starting to crave connection and, uh, we're all stuck at home and living with our, our families, which is all a fantastic experience. But, uh, but we want to connect outside, and and we often talk about the uh, the hashtag goalie union. What a what a great opportunity to bring people together and be able to talk about uh, what we love best. And I think in in many ways, I don't know about you guys, but I think goaltenders probably crave connection a little bit more than than the average folks. I mean, we go to the hockey rink as whether it's as goaltenders or goalie parents, and and you're sort of on an island unto yourself. So what a what a great opportunity to bring people from the union together and and to talk. And one of the things I really enjoyed about it is, is quite often when we're putting content together for, for the site, we struggle with how to target it and we'll have a back and forth. Is this too simple? Is this too complicated? Uh, it's really nice to be able to get that straight up feedback and listen to the questions that we have from people and know that there's this huge range of, of interests and, and experience and, and that we have to sort of, I think, Kevin, I think it helps us target what we're doing.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And and again, like, uh, just so people know, the, the guys that joined us, the Billy Ranfords mm-hmm. of the world, the Andy Kiotos, um, Paul Schonfelder, Fred Brathwaite, uh, Pete Martin from Pro Skate Goalie in Calgary, who had some great insights in terms of some of the questions about ordering and some of the specifics about gear towards the end. He joined us late. All organic. That was the beauty of it. We didn't... You know, Our heads are spinning now is whether we can schedule some of these guys to come mm-hmm. on for a chat about goaltending, but I had no idea that those guys were going to show up for this and to see them on, on, on board and, and, like I said, just chipping in and to have their insights and their answers was just, man, it was, it was positive, positive, well, positive from my end to hear all that. It was so cool.
0: We'll get to uh, Michael Lawrence and Matthew Garan here in just a second, but uh, I had a conversation with Billy uh, just offline. And his answer and uh, comment about the webinar was uh, really uh, sensational in the sense that he was there just to gain knowledge. He loves learning. So he'll do whatever it takes at uh, whatever time. And uh, now is a good opportunity to to gain that knowledge. And it was an equipment review and he was still on there doing his thing. So I, I, I thought that was a, a great testament to Billy.
2: And it would be a style of equipment that you know, would be quite foreign to him. Obviously, he grew up wearing softer equipment, softer pads, more flexible, a little more feel and tighter to the leg uh, type of equipment. But so do his guys, right? For the most part. Like we had Cal Peterson on last, or the week before, and he talked about wanting tighter pads. And Jonathan Quick, whose pads are like pillow soft and as tight as they can be. And so, but he's going to have other prospects coming through. Like, you know, speaking of Michael Lawrence, Jacob Ingham, Uh, goes to his goalie schools in the summer, pro goaltending, and is on a, you know, having a heck of a season and and on a real nice career path An LA Kings draft pick, but he's a guy that wears these Bauer pads. So, uh, you know, the more active rebounds and the conversations about how they perform and fit differently, uh, I think that's so cool that you've got somebody who's already in the NHL that's looking to just learn as much as he can. Um, you know, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I'm not sure if that's why, but for sure, there's going to be kids that come along as part of the LA Kings organization that aren't always going to wear, you know, Jack Campbell and Jonathan Quick. Like I said, you know, you could take them like a xylophone mm. and squeeze <laughs> them. Those pads are so soft. Yeah, there's a new generation, and so an opportunity to learn about how that gear works. That's your favorite instrument, isn't it? I just I think the, you the meant accordion. Like, at both at times,
1: you can't do that with a xylophone.
2: Oh, see, I'm not that bright. I told you guys I'm musically inept. Xylophone and accordion. I need. I go, oh, oh, do I have to go to the box and feel you shame now? You have to now? be so I strong to do that with a xylophone, uh, Woody. Well, I have been working out, but I'm pretty sure that's not going so to. The, so the fact that I was squeezing like a, an accordion
1: yeah, it's all good. and
2: saying xylophone, the people yeah. at home just think I'm an it's idiot. Okay. It's all good. I like watching you dance around that
0: like a polka, which is uh, traditional to the accordion,
1: not the xylophone. Uh, we the, have to do another uh, one though. We have to get, to get the gang together yeah. again and 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 have another chat. I think. Well, can, just
0: one more thought too. Uh, it was impressive that there were so many goaltenders that were uh, young kids, minor hockey and and junior hockey, but also uh, a strong uh, representation from the forty and over group. And that well was uh, that was also very positive. Yeah, that was that that was really cool. Which gets me into the goalie mask contest. And a great email that we got this week from Trevor Van McElberg, Uh and his son Tristan uh, submitted uh, a, a copy and a great design, but they're from Deloraine, Manitoba. So I wanted to give them a shout out uh, because uh, from the Royals and uh, Southwestern Manitoba, a place that, that I know well. But I think it's really cool that we've got this, uh, this strong following from, from 40 and over. Woody,
2: yeah, no, we, uh, we next time we're gonna have to place an over under on the amount of hip surgeries that uh, take part in a in goal webinar because we had hey, a few, we had a couple guys that had, had both sides done
0: surgeries, and did we have a couple of replacements too? I think we did, which is different, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, and uh, and the the thinking going all, all along was they don't really like you playing after you have your hip replaced playing goal. So I thought that was a real positive as well that uh, that there's some
2: some guys who have had it uh, swapped out. And are still playing the position. Uh, bodes well, for me, cause the guy has been told he'll eventually have to have his done. So that's, that is a positive. And what I love too, we talked about learning some of the guys that were of a certain vintage and, and actually one may have been drinking a certain vintage as we chatted, um, nice big glass of wine awesome. there, but we're, there was, we had, and I I'm, I can't remember the name, so I apologize in advance, but, uh, you know, again, more our generation, but still, you know, living and helping kids in minor hockey in. uh, in a more remote area where there wasn't a lot of goalie coaching options. And he was right. on there to learn uh, and ask questions about how the gear worked. And then some coaching questions uh, that he asked of, of Bill Ranford and Eddie Kyoto and those guys so that he could help as, as a guy who's still trying to learn the modern game to teach. Cause that's not how we played. And, and Bill Ranford, we had dusty emu on talking about, you know, how you catch a puck, how to cushion a puck, the motion of it, similar philosophies there, that it was just it was it was it was awesome, and so I'm looking forward to doing more of these for sure. Well, taking uh, the reins of uh, goaltenders
0: uh, that don't have a lot of instruction available, uh, catching the puck or catching a tennis ball, uh, also uh, an older goaltender who's learning new skills. It, it all goes into our webinar, but also uh, this week's feature interview in Matthew Garan. You'll get uh, a dose of uh, those topics as well as what happens if your sticks aren't working for you and you're in the middle of a serious playoff series. Um, It happened for Garan. And what did he do? He looked to a guy on the other team. It's fascinating stuff. This week's feature interview, Matthew Garan, NHL uh, veteran goaltender, Southpaw on In Goal Radio, the podcast with Kevin Woodley.
2: So normally, normally we start with where it all started for you. We like to ask goalies where the inspiration came from. But first off for you, let's catch up with what you've been doing since, since you ended your career, one year in the KHL at the end after the Tampa Bay Lightning. Where's home for you now and what have you been up to?
3: I live in Tampa now. Uh, I work for the Tampa Bay Lightning uh, Community Hockey. So what I do on a daily basis is basically I teach kids. That could, I mean, Tampa, Florida is a is not known for hockey so I we teach the kids out to play hockey all to hold a hockey stick so we go to the schools and mostly every day and then I also do the the stuff on the ice with them like all the camps uh, I mean we're on the ice almost every day so it's it's fun to be around kids and teach them the basic of hockey because there's not much going on here for, for you for, I mean there's a lot going on but there's a lot of kids that grew up didn't know anything about hockey and aside from that, I I'll, I'll also do goalie lessons. So I work with uh, probably 30, 40 goalies here in Florida. Uh, on, uh, some, some of them are on a weekly basis, some are a couple times a year. So it's, it's fun to, to be around hockey players.
2: Of course, Tampa Bay Lightning were the final two years of your NHL career. So what was it about the area that uh, attracted you to stay, other than the fact that it's probably gorgeous weather, a little, a little nicer in the winter than Quebec?
3: yeah a little a little bit of everything i think at this point of my career like my kids were older and i i mean i played for six different teams so every other years we would be moving so i think it was more like staying in one place and now they were older they had friends and schools they they liked so it was more about about the kids but also i mean it's hard not to love tampa
2: okay well i'd like to come back to the coaching stuff later um and and just get you to reflect a little bit on how it's changed but in order to get there let's go back to where it started for you um we get so many different answers there's a few common threads here but for you how did how did you become a goaltender what attracted you to the position how did it start
3: uh goalie equipment uh, i think um i think just the the fact that they were goalies were wearing a different gear bigger gear uh obviously when, when i was a fan of goalies a goalie gear was brown and uh, old but <laughs> it was uh, I think it was just the equipment and then obviously uh, getting a little older Patrick what was uh, obviously an inspiration for me uh, and then being a big fan of Montreal Canadiens and also the Quebec Nordics back
2: then too. Now did you play out as well or were you strictly a goalie what age did it become something that went from hey I just want to be a goalie to something that got a little serious for you? I think
3: uh, I think the first two years I was a defenseman because my dad didn't want me to be a goalie. He wanted me to start skating, learn to out 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 skate, obviously. And I mean, it was always like even though like I wanted to score goals, I think it was always about retrieving in my zone and taking care of the net. So being a, a really defensive defenseman. So after a few years, he let me uh, become a goalie full time, and I'm I'm glad it
2: happened. Do you remember roughly the age? Because I mean, obviously, the one thing I noticed you got to play at the Quebec Pee Wee tournament, which is uh, an iconic event. So, how long had you been a goaltender by the time you hit the Pee Wee age?
3: Uh, a long time. I think I think I started really young to play in a team. I was like four or five, and probably uh, probably six or seven when I uh, I turned full time goalie. And yes, I uh, went to the Quebec Pee Wee tournament, and it's uh, it's funny because two years ago, my son. Uh, with his team here in Tampa, we we had a chance to uh, to go back to the Pee Wee tournament, so it was it was a very uh, good event for us.
2: Now, obviously, for the, for a lot of everybody knows what the tournament is, but not everyone gets to experience it. In your words, having been there as a as a, as a young guy and now on the coaching side or with with your son, how would you describe it? Like, how, does all the sort of hype do it justice? What what makes that event so special for? For hockey players it is,
3: it is very special for uh, for a different reason i mean you get to play teams from all around the world we played a few exhibition games i think one was uh, switzerland one was japan like these kids will never have that same experience ever uh and the fact that you play in the nhl building with the, the i know our game we were playing right before the the main uh the, the main opening game so there was probably ten thousand people in the the building when we played the with with my son so it's uh it's a great experience. And to this day, the kids are still talking about it. They're, most of them are still friends with their uh, Billet family because when we went there, the kids were living in the family, a couple of them in each family. So they still talk about that. They still talk to those families. So it's just an experience they'll never forget.
2: It sounds, it sounds like a great experience. What, um, so from there, you move up, obviously play minor hockey, but into junior, have an incredible junior career, QM, JHL, CHL goalie of the year in 97 98 can you share with us and and obviously our audience is all goaltenders what your development path was like back then like some of the influences in terms of coaching when did you have your first goalie coaching how much of it was at at that age we're talking sort of mid to late 90s was just you learning on your own and how much structure was there back then
3: yeah, it's it was way different back then. I mean, I first had my my first goalie coach actually was Francois Allaire, so I I've got the right one to start with. Not bad. But I was uh, I was I was about uh, I was sixteen, seventeen when I I turned uh, junior after my major AAA. So that's the first time I met him, and he uh, he changed everything. Like he, I mean, the just having I remember after the first practice I had with him for an hour, an hour and a half, uh, I got out of there and I told my dad, I'm like, wow, I learned. So much today, I learned more than I learned over the, the previous like ten years or something. So it was uh, it was great to have him around me. And then from then, you uh, would follow me juniors, and then even the NHL, we would we would still talk. And every summer, probably ten goal, ten of uh French Canadian goalies would skate together. I see Luongo's jersey behind you. Luongo was one of them. Biron, Jiguer, uh, like but a bunch of goalies. We were all there every summer. So it was uh, it was obviously Francois was my, the biggest uh, change for me in my career.
2: Well, you've definitely got fans of Francois here at the end goal side. We've been pushing for him to be that first goalie coach in the hall of fame. I think it's about time we had one and there'd be no better one to go in first. So um, what, what were those like? We've heard I've talked to Marty Biron about, you know, those camps in the summers. And I think from the outside, he gets branded as so technical, but I remember Biron talking to me about like some, they'd be doing like just all kinds of crazy drills. Sometimes it wasn't all technique. There were, you know things that I don't think a lot of us. The stereotype of Francois Lair isn't necessarily fair to him as a teacher.
3: Yeah, no, I think he was. Uh, I mean, obviously the technical part is a big uh, was a big part of his uh, teaching, but he was like, I mean, he would come up with different things. And and for me, like with Francois, it was more like the thinking, the reasoning behind everything. Like he would, he would like, okay, why would you do that? There, like it was not just like do it or something. There was always like the questioning behind it, and like trying to come up with new thing and always trying to be the first one to come up with something and uh, find that just a little thing that's going to make a difference.
2: What um so so you get drafted by the Montreal Canadiens. What's that experience like as a guy who grew up like were you I'm a, that, that's presumptuous of me actually to assume you were a Habs fan but you mentioned why, what was it like to get drafted by the Montreal Canadiens high pick 44th overall and spend your your first 5 years in that organization?
3: Yeah, it was it was amazing. I think uh like it was a dream come true for me like playing for for my I mean I was I grew up for probably 4 or 5 hours away from uh, Montreal, but it was like my hometown uh, team. Uh it was it was great. It was uh, such a great organization and then be part of all that history was something special. Like getting to play my first NHL game uh with them was it was great and Remember working with uh, Roly Melanson in Montreal. He was really good with me too. He was uh, very intense. Like, he, like I had to work hard with him. Like I remember being on the ice like half an hour before and half of an hour after every practice with him. But I learned so much. And it was a it was a good compl- compliment from Francois because uh, Roly had more of the like trying to force me to stay more on my feet sometimes, like being more patient. Uh, not use my butterfly as much and the stick handling and everything. It was just a great addition to have Roley uh, as a goalie coach. Too.
2: What did it mean to have Roly Cause you know, I was just looking, doing the math in my head. Cause I know Roly like he actually started doing a little coaching while he was still playing. And so by the time you had him, he only would have been three or four years removed from his playing career. Was there, so, so not, you know, like, not like 20 years since he's played was there a, was was it easy to make a connection with him as a player just because he was so close to having played himself
3: yeah it was uh, I mean he was fresh off of uh playing I, I, I don't have the numbers either but he was uh, I mean he had been in the league for a long time been around and he was uh, it was great great uh really good with me like he, he could find like the at the time it was with jose theodore and we look like, every goal is different it's it was good to see how roly was adjusting from jose to me and trying not to have us do the same things because we had different skills different strength in our games and he was really good at like play like coaching each individuals
2: yeah we, i saw that i got i got the pleasure of watching roly work here in vancouver with the canucks for several years and um, talking to the goalies that work with him and that certainly echoes everything I've heard as well from them. Uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit. You talked about gear uh, and, and loving the gear and falling in love with the position because of the gear kind of I'm trying to do the math in my head. Would you have been a guy who growing up would have had pads that like would you have been a part of that revolution or evolution from pads that necessarily didn't rotate to sort of the modern pads where they would your leg would rotate in them and they'd have a landing gear. Was that part of your career?
3: Yeah, my, I mean, I was more, uh, I mean, the first part, like the really tight pad. Yeah. Uh, mine weren't turning much. I, uh, I had the double uh, flex on the knee because uh, I didn't like, this, uh, like the stiff. Like I would have a hard time right now probably with the, the stiff bowers or the real straight ones. Those yeah, ones, no, those ones like, over I mean, my shoulder? Yeah. All about, it's all, like, for me, it's more about like uh, getting used to something and liking it. Uh, I, I would probably not be good at, like, a, the, like, I feel like the goalie gear has uh, changed so much lately that uh, I, I'd probably be the old-school guy with, like, flurry with the leather strap still and then no Velcro. So, uh, but it's it's amazing now, like, coaching all those goalies, all the little things, Now the pads are so light. Uh, they're, they're barely tight to your legs. Like, I remember back then when Patrick Laleem was wearing his pads, like, he would always, almost lose his pads, but I was like looking at it like, oh my gosh, what is he doing? But I, it's the new thing now. It's just like, it's me being old. I think.
2: <laughs> what? Well, I, I'm curious. What the first time you got one that wasn't tight, that had that landing gear that you could sort of land on and rotate it? Like, do you think that was a big difference for like as far as the evolution of the position, the ability to have a pad that would, as you drop to the ice, land flat and you could slide around? I guess I ask it because we're seeing a lot of these you know, classic games, the NHL's on pause and they're showing us a lot of classic games. And, you know, every recovery is scrambling back to the feet. And, and the irony, of course, is in today's game, a lot of coaches are trying to get guys to recover back to their feet more. But the ability to slide and stay on your and move laterally without having to get up, that was largely started with the pads allowing you to do that. And I, I, I wonder, do you think that was a like a massive change for goalies and, and the way the position was taught? Because you you would have been you know, it would have been earlier in career, but you would have been a part of that.
3: Yeah, I was a part of that. And I remember like having the the, the piece uh, on the inside, like the flat piece made made a big difference because now you would fall and you'd be solid. Like you wouldn't fall forward or backward. You'd be like strong on the, on the ice. So it made a big difference because when it was just like wrapped around your calf before, it was like, no, you would just like, land and out of position all the time.
2: Yeah, do you remember? I'm trying to do the math in my head on when that was because it predates me starting with goaltending. So probably around I the was, '90s.
3: Yeah, I'd say '93 around there. Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah, because okay. I
3: remember my first pair of Lefebvre were '94, '95 around there, and that's I feel like that's when it started to change a little bit more.
2: Yeah. And you were a Reebok guy coming up with with the LeFaves as well. A lot of uh, I was looking through some of the setups over the years. You build a good relationship with them as part of. You know, being from Quebec and them being the producers?
3: Yeah, they were really good with me. Uh, Michel Lefebvre and his, uh, and his son, they were, I mean, they, they, they would all, always do stuff with me. I know they stopped making the masks after a while, but for me, they kept it because I had the mold and everything. So they, they were always nice with me. And, I mean, I know a lot of uh, goalies these days and like, they go with contracts with companies and stuff like that. But for me, it was not about the money. It was about like wearing what I liked. and. And, and I'm one of those guys, like I started with that and I, I'm very loyal. I would, like, I mean, I finished with everything, uh, even though like after a while, like there's so many options, like I wouldn't, I, I felt bad even looking at other companies.
2: <laughs> um, you mentioned J- Jose and, and playing with him in Montreal, Theodore, and we're talking about equipment, how tough, like I'm assuming because you catch with your right that you're left-handed, but it's not always the case. Um how tough was like getting equipment especially when you were younger in terms of getting a right catching glove and then I wanted to talk about yeah, Jose isn't the first the only time you had a a, a guy who on your team who also caught right that's becoming increasingly rare but you had a few
3: Yeah it was uh, I mean yes going to your first question it was hard to find I remember there was when I was lucky there was one goalie glove in the store that was uh, for me on my side but uh, and, and then you couldn't order online back then. So it was just like uh, you, you buy whatever there, there is there. So uh, that, was the, that was the first part. And obviously, having playing with Jose, being a full right too, was my first experience in the NHL. I had uh, Mason and Columbus too, both of us. Uh, but going back to Montreal, my first camp in Montreal, it was uh, Theodore uh, Jablonski. Vokun, me, and Thiebaud. Thiebaud was the only goalie, not full right. So four out of five were uh, full right goalies. So you'll never see that again.
2: I was going to say, because you, you and Steve Mason were the last sort of complete season tandem of two full right guys. We've seen a few guys get together for stretches. Michael Hutchison this year with Pavel Franzuz, both, but only for you know, a couple of weeks before they shut the season down. Did did you get to try each other's gear more? Because that's the other thing when you could never try stick patterns or different blockers or different gloves with any other combo. Unless that must have been a great year for it.
3: That was that was uh, that was fun. And even with yeah Jose and uh, Mason, both of them, I would I would because you know when you try a glove that's not on your side, I mean you can't get a good feel for it. So that was a. Uh, I remember practicing with Jose's glove a few times too because I had issues with my glove. And one time later in my career, when uh, actually when I was with Pittsburgh in the playoffs in '9, we played Washington and the other was for Washington. I started using his sticks for practice because my stick had issues with my stick too. So he gave me two or three of his sticks and we were playing against him. I was using his sticks, but obviously I wasn't playing, but for practices.
2: oh that's great that was and that was i I had to write on this recently and i i never to be honest i always think glove glove but it's also the blocker and it's also the stick was it tough to find you know the right twig when you were younger just you had to take whatever they had
3: it was hard and going back to uh, jose's giving me a few of this like uh, i never like with the with ccm or reebok at the time they wouldn't uh, make my pattern composite because because it was it was hard to so I had no no chance to use it. so that's why I tried one of his bowers stick one time like i want I want to know the feeling with a composite stick. so it was a uh, it was it was fun. it was but it was hard to find equipment you're right
2: Do you, now I gotta ask you because um, it was shocking to me when I started looking at the numbers, just how few right catching goalies, full right goalies there are anymore. um and it may just be part of a trend. But, you know, a couple of years ago, there were 43 or 43 starts. That's how many starts in the NHL. The last time it was that low was 1963, 64, when there were just six teams in the NHL. So, you know, from the 80s of, you know, 12 goalies in the league that caught that way and, and 300 plus starts uh, through the 90s, steady around the 200 starts, you know, down to under 50 just a couple of years ago. I think we had 70 this year. As a guy who was a full right himself. Any theories? Any idea on what is just maybe a historical trend or you know is it it should be easier, shouldn't it to get gear now?
3: Yeah, I mean, you if you talk about like, the 70s and 80s being low, I'd, I'd be like, well, it's probably because those goalies were forced to to switch like to play uh, even though they were not they were full right to play the normal side, but now it's I, I, I don't have an answer for you. It's just weird that uh, there's trends like this.
2: Yeah, I, I, we've been trying to figure it out. One of, the tr- one of the theories was back in the 70s and 80s, you might be able to, as a young guy to just use a baseball glove. And nowadays, everything has to be so specialized. So maybe even though it's easier to order it online, maybe in minor hockey, it's not as easy as we think. So food for thought. Listen, um, I don't want to keep you on that one. Uh, Montreal, LA. Uh, when you went to LA for a couple of years and then to Pittsburgh, you get traded to Pittsburgh in 2009 and you go on to win the cup that year. What was that experience like?
3: That was great. That was perfect timing. At the time, I was in Edmonton. and
2: Sorry. That, I, you know, missed, year, I missed the we, stop.
3: Yeah, that year we, uh, we started the season with three goalies, and it didn't work out for me practice-wise. Like, it's, it's hard to, to have three goalies. Like, there's only two nets, right? Uh, so that was a hard time. Then I got traded to Pittsburgh, a little shocked, but uh, I got there. I think we were in 10th place. We were not in the playoffs. And within a couple of weeks, they changed coach and we started winning. We started playing really well. And being part of, uh, of that team, like, first of all, like, the te- my teammates were amazing. Like, we had so much fun. We're still, we're still all in the group text right, right to this day, like, still talking on group text. So it's, uh, it's wow. something amazing. Yeah. But um, I mean, playing with uh, Fleury too was great. Uh, so we started winning. We went on a run in the playoffs. And, you never know in the playoffs, but we we had that power of being down one goal in the third period, and uh, we got this one. we got to get a power play. These uh, Malkin and Crosby are gonna make it happen. It was it was great. It was uh, obviously when you dream about winning the Stanley Cup, you're usually in net. You're not in your dreams. You're not seeing on the bench. But I wouldn't I wouldn't change it for anything. It was just just being part of that group and having a chance to win it in my career. It was a it was a great experience.
2: You're ten years into your career at that point. What did you see in a young marc Andre Fleury then? That that was there anything there that you're like this that you knew he'd have the career he's had?
3: He's yeah. I mean, I knew for sure. Like his uh, his footwork is amazing. He's so quick. Uh, but but is the compete level in the practices? It was. I mean, he he loves to have fun. He's a he's a total different goalie. I mean, he, he's the one that five minutes before warm up, he's still not dressed and he gets there late. He's not like he, I think he, he, does, he doesn't want to have a routine. He wants to, if he, if it's too tight, he's not feeling well. He needs to be loose. So he's a total different goalie, but in practices, he, 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 he fights hard and he's, he really wants to, to stop all those bucks. And it was a, at that time, I was older, but it was good for me to be around him and see like, oh my god, that's what it is to compete. Like I, I thought I was competing hard, and I think I, I was a goalie that works hard in practice. But the compete level is like was totally different
2: with him. It's funny because he he talks about having he's the last goalie that we're aware of that still plays last puck even when he's starting um, in the pregame warmups, and that 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 energy that the fun, the compete, but also the having fun part um, seems to be such a staple for him and important for him. He's talked with me about it. Is there a lesson there for young kids too, that you can, you can be that determined and that competitive, but if you're not having fun, you, you, you know, the game still got to be fun. And yeah. You and and, with and your looking kids?
3: back in my career, I wish I would have been more like this. Cause I mean, that's a grind, like a season's a grind. You practice every day. Like if you're, serious all the time and it's good to be serious and wanting to like to be like work hard and everything but if you don't have fun some some days it's not fun to go it's like going to the office if it's not fun you're 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 not performing as well so uh watching him and having fun like this i i think i think it's a good lesson for everybody you see him smile like when he makes a save and when I remember the playoff against Ovechkin, he would chirp Ovechkin, he would stop in and it would be like, uh, like making those sounds, like, ooh, this stuff, stuff like that. You, you, you'll never, you, you won't see many goalies do that, but it's, it's refreshing, and it's like, it, it'd be fun to be around him, like, even for his teammates. Like, being around this guy is amazing.
2: Well, I can't believe I missed Edmonton when I was running through the timeline to get to Pittsburgh, because I, I actually had an Edmonton question I wanted to ask you. Um, you signed there as a UFA in 6 07. You went 10-0 and 0 in shootouts, 30 of yeah. 32. So if somebody asked you, um, what, what's your advice on shootout? What was your approach to shootouts at that time? And is there anything that you think translates into lessons you could teach, whether it's kids or other young up-and-coming goaltenders on how to have success in a shootout?
3: Yeah, well, for me, Matt, I think if you look at flips, I mean, it, I was very aggressive. Like, I would, I would go above the ash mark and start, like, with a lot of speed going backwards, I I think at this point it was more like forcing them to deep me because I knew at speed to go left or right. Uh, I I felt better than having them shoot on me. Like I've always I, I think I think I could I was more effective at sliding and reacting to the deke, So I would I would force them to deep me. I would go really high and try to come with, with a lot of speed going backwards, and and I remember actually against Vancouver, like we had so many shootouts against them that year. And they were trying and like they would, they would stop, they would take slap shots and like at some point they would try something different, but it it was one of those years. Like I feel like everything was clicking and the year after I started to do video and study guys more and it it didn't go as well. Like I started not, not being as good. So I think it's, it's good to know, okay, well, you play, you, you go against a Braden Point, he likes his, uh, like his shot low blocker, right? low glove for me, low blocker. It's good to know stuff like this on players, like have a good uh, like sense of what they like to do, but you can't be thinking too much when you have a shootout. Like, you just have to react. Like, you you just read if the puck is in front of them, you read a deep. If the puck goes on the side, you read shot. And obviously, uh, unless you play against that suit, then it's a different thing. You can
2: he can, he can DQ
3: any, any way, but, but it's more like you don't want to be thinking, oh, I think he's going to shoot. I think he's just like react to what they're doing.
2: Well, in an era where there's never been more pre-scout information available, I, I still talk to goalies today. Some guys want to know it, but a lot of them too much information because then they start to, you know, back of your head, you can start to cheat to something that might not happen. That, and that's usually when you're in trouble. So that makes, that makes a, a ton of sense. Then on to Columbus and your partnership with Steve Mason, another all lefty tandem. The one thing I never asked you before about that about catching right, especially to get in when you're in a full season with another guy who does it, what'd you hear from the shooters? Like, do you think it, in an in an era where maybe when the pre-scouts and we get into playoffs and everyone's like, okay, they lock in on a guy, but you know, in an 82 game season and it's a different goalie every night, could it be an advantage where guys In their head, they come down. They don't look up. They just assume it's low blocker, and boom, it's right into your glove. Does that actually? Can that actually help?
3: I'm sure it makes a big difference uh, for a shooter. I I, I think I I realize it more now that I'm coaching goalies. Sometimes I have uh, full rights or regulars, so it it makes a difference for a shooter. But uh, I remember after after that second year in Columbus, uh, we had a few of our players that went to see the GM and said, "Okay, the reason why we're not scoring goals is because we're used to." shoot on these guys during practice. So when actually when Columbus didn't resign me that year, that's the excuse they told me. They told me uh, we don't want two full rides. So guys are saying that's the reason why they can't score in a game, so we're going to have to let you go. So I don't know if it makes it such a difference or it was just an excuse for players that couldn't score, but uh, I guess it does.
2: I, I remember that now with Scott Housen, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I've forgotten all about that. Now you, you've just brought that back into my memory. That's... Uh... That's an interesting take on their part for sure. Um, so there you go to Tampa Bay but the, the positive side is you end up in Tampa Bay with the lightning and, and last couple of years of your career and you're back there in Tampa Bay now. Um, I wanted to ask you a little, uh, one last one about the career. After the two years in Tampa you decided to spend a year in the KHL. What was that like um, after you know close to a decade in the NHL to, to heading overseas and, and spending that year in the KHL and Yeah, 2013-14, so it would have been a different year over there. Like, I know it's evolved, but what was it like back then?
3: It was, I mean, my experience was a nightmare. I'm not saying the whole thing is a nightmare, but I got there. I Actually, I went to uh, Ellie's training camp that year. I got cut the the last day before a season. So I I joined the team in Russia. They were probably 20 games in. And, I mean, the, the whole thing for me, being in the NHL for that long, being used to be in the regular ring, so just a bigger rink Olympic rink was a big, big difference for me and russia the players are not playing the same way like you would have a, they would have a A scoring chance you're like okay he's going to shoot for sure and they would go for like, a spin, find somebody else like for me like the re- reading the game there was really hard, and even even breakaways, I feel like everything was different, and I could never adjust and and, and it was like, uh, I got injured, got a, uh, tore my groin. So after three months, he decided to buy me out and, and it was probably a good thing for me. Like I, I didn't, I didn't feel anything was, uh, my mind was not at the right place. Obviously I was, I was uh, a little disappointed that my NHL career was over. I knew it was my last year, no matter what. So it's just, uh, it was, I'm, I'm glad I went, it was a, uh, it was a good experience, but, uh, on the ice was not, was not my best performances. Well,
2: we've heard that from other guys. I remember uh, Pekka Rinne, when he went over at one point during a, a lockout shortened season, same thing. He just said that it was pass, 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 have a great A chance, dust it off and pass again. Like they just never shot. So it was, it, the style of game was just so different. It, was, it would have been a tough adjustment. Um, you go back to go back to Tampa Bay right away after that and just walk us through, we started it and we'll end it there in terms of coaching and what you enjoy about coaching. Um, yeah, whether, yeah, go ahead.
3: So, so yes, I came back to Tampa, retired, and and I stayed. Uh, I stayed close with Franz Jean, the goalie coach here. Uh, it's always been great to me. And then uh, slowly, the few the following years, like he started, we, we, we always kept uh, kept in touch, and we I helped him with the development camp with the goalies here, the rookie goalies, and uh, it was it was fun. I learned a lot out of him. And then, from there, I'm like I decided, okay, well, it's a good uh, good something I like to do. I like to teach kids and I slowly I started working with kids, and now it's a matter of uh, I, I'm very busy with my other job too the full- time job with the lightning so I, as much as I can be on the ice, I'm on the ice. I'm trying to be on the ice almost every day with the goalies uh, i uh, I learned a lot. It's amazing like you every kid is different, so you the way I teach one kid is totally different from another one. You just have to find a way uh, they're going to listen to you and understand what you're saying. So I, for me, it's, it's something like I liked in every kid that I have. It's a different challenge every kid. And I like to know like what they like, what they're, what, what, what pushes them in life. So that way, that's the way sometimes to get to them. and, And I really enjoy it.
2: It's more about working with the person than it is necessarily the technical goaltender sounds like. Yeah. It sounds like like you're really enjoying it too. If you can compare that to you as a young kid growing up and first playing goal, like where are these kids now in terms of how they move and how they play? What do you think is the biggest difference there? Is it just the coaching? Uh,
3: Yeah, coaching and, I mean, the whole, like, uh, hockey in general. I mean, everything got so much better. I'm teaching kids. I mean, some of them are... 10, 12 year old and they're way better than I, I mean, technically way better than I was like when I was 16 probably. Like it's just, I, I would say there's probably a five year, five year, as far as movements and stuff, obviously those kids can't take a shot from a 16 year old. It's totally different, but right. as far as technical and movements, there's probably a five year difference from what I was playing.
2: So we've seen in this, I've seen this since I started writing about goaltenders, um, probably around 2003, 2004. I remember even back then, remember in the NHL proper leg recovery, not everybody got up with the right leg. And, they, and guys then would say, I go to these camps and I see these 12 year olds and, and they move better than me. And So we hear that still. The one thing that we sometimes seem to lose, or at least I hear from coaches at different levels, is the ability to read the game, to, to, to play the game, for lack of a better term. They can move and they can play the, the drills but to play the game. What do you think, in your opinion, what do you see there? And is there a way, uh, is there a reason for it? Is there a way we can help these kids, you know, learn to sort of read things and read the game? Other than, of course, reading in Goal Magazine, which we always recommend. As they should, right? Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> uh, Sh- shameless.
3: You know, the one thing sometimes I notice with kids is that I will uh, put a drill together where I'm skating with a puck or I'm attacking from the corner or something and one of the first questions I asked them is like, uh, uh, why, how would you play it for a lefty or how would would you play it with a righty? Like it's, like it's easy to play. Like, I feel like it's a different read if it's a lefty coming at you or a righty, but most of the kids don't realize it. when I ask the question, they're like, Oh, it takes a while. And then they're like, Oh, it makes sense. Like if, if it's a righty coming from their right side, I mean, the, it's the shot is a better angle for a shot. If it's a lefty, there's no angle. So it's something that like kids, like most of the kids have a hard time. They they just see a player coming at them. They don't realize, okay, the lefty righty, I have to play it different. So for me, that's one thing as far as a read that at a young age we still have to tell them, okay, if it's a righty, it's you're gonna play it totally different there and the. the then then they realize it makes sense
2: well it's funny when we do our pro reads now one of the new things that we do at in is where the nhl guys look at video and share with us as the play moves around his own all the different elements that they're thinking about and that's one of the first things it's not the just the guy with the puck either it's where that guy is on the back door or at the face off yeah. dot for a one t lefty righty so that's a big that sounds It makes a ton of sense as far as being a big part of the read
3: and then yeah another thing too on the like when there's a rush coming at you, like it's one thing to be focused on the shooter, but you have to read: is it a two-on-one? Is it a three-on-two? What's coming at me? And the guy on my on the on the back door—is he—is he, is he going to be on this like a like a one-timer? With, like, what's going to happen if he gets it? He's, can he shoot it right away? Or can he come back in the middle? So it's it's all about read. Like it's not just who has the puck; it's everything that's going on in the ice.
2: Okay, speaking of reading, this is my last one for you. I know we're all sort of stuck off the ice right now. It's not easy for any of us. Is there anything you're doing uh, with kids that you're still in touch with? Uh, Even if it's as simple as we're putting together a book list here, like recommended reading for young goaltenders, or are there things that you're advising guys to do to make sure that, not just to kill some time, because we've all got so much of it right now, it seems, but ways you can get better as a goaltender without necessarily getting on the ice?
3: I mean, there's a lot of things. I'm I'm sure online, and I'm sure you guys show a lot of those things, but a lot of uh, like just body weight uh, exercises. You don't need any weight. Like, uh, okay, you, you anything that involves like like I, I I like to say like it's nice to do like squats and two legs and everything. But for goalie, you're always most of the time you're on one leg, like trying to shift left and right. So everything that's one leg, like the lunges, one everything like sideways is, is, is what I recommend to my goalies. Everything. Um, obviously, there's there's you can baseball like a tennis ball off the wall and catch it with your bare hand i remember uh being uh sean burke's uh, playing with sean burke a little bit in la and his ritual before game he would ask the backup goalie so like i would be like i didn't get to play much with him but the games i was with him to just to throw a tennis ball at each other but you can only catch it with your uh like with one hand and then really but it's amazing, like a lot of kids, and even I at that point, like it's hard to catch like a like, like a hard throw with a tennis ball just with one hand and just catch it. It just, it just like for him, it was like he's like I can't believe like you and even younger kids, like nobody can catch a tennis ball like
2: barehanded. Do you think so that's because we probably like increasingly? I don't know about yourself, but increasingly we become so specialized at a young age that kids aren't playing other sports. Correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah okay hey matthew i really appreciate this we went longer darren millard is going to be laughing at me right now because i have a habit of going longer but i really enjoyed the conversation and i know our audience is going to as well so thank you very much for taking the time out today in tampa bay and sort of walking us through and sharing some of the experiences of your career
3: great anytime and you guys are doing an amazing job congratulations
2: thanks matthew take care all the best
4: you're welcome
0: That was so good. I I listened to it twice. And there's a there, Woody, don't, don't feel bad. If, if you, if you ask one, two, three, four extra questions, as long as they're good questions, I'm, uh, I'm not going to be all over you. And that was, that was, that was great. Uh, Just first off, uh, that, that Jose Theodore story about uh, using his sticks during a playoff series. And he was, I know that Garon wasn't playing, but still, that's, uh, I'm not sure that
2: some coaches wouldn't be, thrilled with that well I mean, as he said it was his chance to try composite right because he was having trouble getting it for full right and the funny thing is is i mean i i hadn't talked to matthew in a long time and i emailed him kind of looking for some quotes for a story uh that was originally a shorter version at nhl.com on full right goalies and then the longer version we ended up running after talking to him um at at ingle mag and ingle premium um it really turned into not just sort of what it's like to be a full right goalie and some of those stick issues that he talked about, borrowing Theo's, trying Theo's glove when they were together with Montreal, um, but just the the disappearance, the seeming disappearance of full right goalies in the NHL. And Hutch did up a great chart that was an angle premium that ran with the story. Like we had like three hundred and sixty some odd starts in the mid '80s mm-hmm. at a time when finding gloves for your right hand should have been harder. We were down to forty three. Two years ago, 43 starts by NHL goalies. It was the lowest total since 1963, 64, when there were 16. So, yeah, like it's it was kind of one of those, you know, you go looking for something about what it's like to catch with the other hand and how it affects shooters. And you end up with this story on like, holy crap, I didn't realize just how much, you know, how, how much of a down cycle it seemed to be. And, you know, we went into some of the possible reasons for it. And Matthew was so good with it. Um by the time we got back to me the one of the stories had already published at nhl.com but not at Engle. and I just asked him if he'd have more time and so we started going back through the career and he ended up being you know looking for some quotes on full right and such a good interview I I wish we'd had even more time because his insights were uh, they were awesome I really enjoyed it I w- I was
1: fascinated when we put that chart together guys we it immediately came to mind as I saw you know numbers climbing through the late 70s early 80s and i started thinking is there one or two workhorses out there that might be affecting those numbers so we laid the careers of a few of the prominent uh, full right goaltenders on top of that chart and and not all by any means mostly just for style reasons wanting it to look nice and clean um but it was in the it was in the time of Tom Barrasso and Grant Fuhr uh, guys, I thought might be eating up a lot of games that we actually started to see the fall in number of games played uh, by full right goaltenders. So, um, Darren Pupa was in yeah, that uh, yeah. that realm. So, I don't, I mean, Tony Esposito can't be the only reason that it that it rose all the way up till about 1984, 85. Uh, what was the number from 1963? Uh, what he sort of
2: 50 ish or like something? It was, it, it, yeah, I think it was 53, and, I think and, maybe. And,
0: and uh, so I was, I was listening to the, uh, to the interview while I was uh, out for a ride and I listened back to it because it kept thinking, okay, six teams in 63 and, and that 50 num- number is out there. Terry Sawchuk had 48 of them.
2: <laughs> yeah, he definitely would have skewed a few yeah, of those numbers. no doubt.
0: Yeah. But, uh, but it's just, it, well, like it was, it was low then, but it was, it was one guy that was carrying that. So it's, we've gone through this, well, we're, we're ta- lo- talking a lot about the curve, right? Uh, with, with, uh, what's going on in the world right now, but, uh, but we had their peak in the, in the eighties, nineties, and now we're back to, uh, what it was beforehand.
2: Yeah. And interestingly enough, it's, you know, to bring it back to the Garon conversation, it's kinda, it kinda started to slip around, you know. 2010 2011 the next year 2011 2012 was you know almost 300 starts and then it started to slowly fall off to that that low of two years ago where it was pardon me it was 46 starts two years ago not 43 as I said a few minutes ago and interestingly enough not that either him or I are, are implying that it had anything to do with it but about the time the Columbus Blue Jackets decide hey we can't have two of you it's not good for our shooters and actually blame a lack of offense on it um, kind of coincides with a. You know, maybe it's just a coincidence, and part of the cycle, but that kind of coincides with you know the dip a year later starts to drop down. Uh, and hey, this could all change. Uh, Cal Peterson is a heck of a young goaltender we had on mm-hmm. the podcast last week, and his starts are going to go up over the next couple of years. Uh, we got the Askarov kid in Russia is probably going to be the first goalie picked in this next draft. Uh, Pavel Fransuz has obviously had a great start at the age of 29 to his pro career. He'll eat up a few more. So. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not declaring the, the death of full right goalies or this is a trend that will last forever uh, by any stretch, but it's definitely a trend. I have a question for you, though. Yeah. Both of you. Uh, Hutch, you can answer first. Uh-oh. Uh, we,
0: uh, we are uh, on record as, as declaring or acknowledging that a bigger goaltender will be drafted ahead of a six-foot goaltender. That are we all in agreement there? So, a six, somebody six foot four, six foot five will be drafted ahead of uh, somebody that's, that's
1: five, More 11, often than not, all other things being equal?
2: Oh, I don't even think they all need to be equal. I'll yeah, give you that right. one 99 out of 100. Yeah, you're right. How much better then
0: does a Southpaw, a, a right handed catching goaltender, have to be than a left handed catching goaltender uh, if you're a
1: National Hockey League team and you're, you're making your draft list? I think it's a great question and something that came up in a conversation with uh, with a former NHL goaltending coach. Maybe we'll get him on here at some point to to answer the specific one. Because when I asked about that, as we were looking at a bunch of juniors, he he said, "Well, you just think about all the full right goaltenders that we've had over the years," and he starts mentioning the Fears and the Espos of the world. Um, they they're, they've all been so good. I think before you take a guy, he's you got to know he's going to be at that level, and. I still don't quite grasp why it's okay for a, for a regular catching goaltender to, to just be normal and why you have to succeed at that level. But, but there was that question of uh, just having to be that good. And, and there's well, a barrier for you to get over.
2: Well, it's interesting because when you look at it, um, you know, there are some guys that you know, are in the league that not in prominent roles. Louis Domingue is one of the guys that's still around. Kind of you know, He's settled in as more of a backup. Um, you know, Charlie Lindgren, I forgot to mention him as a guy who could be eating yep. up a lot of starts in the future as a young up and comer. But when you look back over the history, like Jonas Hiller was really good for a long time. Thomas Volkun to me is one of the more underrated goalies, um, of his generation. Uh, he was a guy that was big on that list. Jose Theodore won an, won an MVP mm-hmm. award. Um, so that, you know uh rick di pietro didn't ha- have a long career but drafted so high and touted so highly like the names on here are you know dominated by elite high-end guys even b- even even more recently than you know the grant fears of the world so you know could you make the argument i don't know but but that almost begs almost the
1: opposite though woody like so many have been so good that doesn't that tell you you should let a few more have the opportunity
2: Or or you just have to dominate so much at a younger level to get the opportunity and And you have to be that good to get a chance. And maybe it's because, and Hutch, I know you've experienced this in minor hockey. I've experienced it. Matter of fact, it's one of the reasons I stopped agreeing to do minor hockey assessments of goaltenders is sometimes the kids that don't look like goalies get cut first, mm -hmm, whether mm -hmm. they, whether they have more talent or not. And that can be Mismatched gear could be gear that just looks ratty and old compared to new stuff. It, it sucks. It shouldn't be that way, but quite often it is that way. And I just can't help but think of the number of times over the year I've had I've had people say that that sort of the the full rights, the guys that catch with the right hand, they they just look different. They don't look the same. And and you know whether it's on purpose or not, maybe there's this subtle weeding out of guys even at a very young age just that path becomes that much harder for them i again none of the guys we talked to confirm well, that we like none of them yeah
1: we, we and we do have to be careful about sample size here which we talk about all the time this is such a small sample size and all it takes is cal peterson to go on a run next year and he doubles the number um so really tough but darren you brought up size in drafting and and Kevin, you mentioned Jose Theodore. So there's a guy who won a Hart Trophy not too long ago at five foot eleven. So there's he does both. Yeah, he was six foot
0: two with the two. <laughs> yeah,
1: that was epic style. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna. It's the, the toque's
0: still on uh, in his mask shelf. And that's another thing that's coming out of all this uh, this COVID and all the uh, Zoom interviews. We're getting a good look at some people's uh, some goaltenders' uh, man caves and uh, and viewing areas, aren't we? Like Mason uh has a has a great one going. Uh uh Brian Elliott. Uh, Bill Ranford. Brian Elliott has an awesome one. Uh that that thing's spectacular. Uh, in the background with Billy was a couple of masks. Uh it's it's kind of cool to see everybody with their display. Um our
2: our our good
0: friend Alex Alt has his mask out.
2: That was that was a fun one, actually. That's another one that if you haven't checked out already to the listeners, check it out at Ingold Premium. Um, just before the league got shut down, Alex came to the rink at Rogers Arena to pick up a bag of masks, and I couldn't figure out, you know, what the deal was. Um, he'd had a property that he purchased when he was in Florida, and they kept it as a rental property. Mostly Panthers players that had come through there after he left would rent the property off him, and he just left some of his stuff there, including this bag of masks from his career. And so, finally, this year he arranged. I don't. I think he sold the property, but he arranged for the bag of old equipment and old masks to be picked up or dropped off at the Florida Panthers, uh, um, facility. And then when the Canucks went through town, the equipment managers were gracious enough to throw it in with theirs and bring it back to Vancouver. And so I was there in Vancouver when Alex picked it up and I'm like, Hey, why don't we have a quick go through? And so we pulled out the video camera. He walked us through all these masks and I'm telling you, there is a treasure trove of hidden stories uh, masks from all kinds of different mask makers: um, Eddie, Michelle Lafave, um, Greg Harrison. Actually, and if you check our Instagram, Greg responded to the post that Greg Harrison mask of Alex Ald is the last Greg Harrison mask made. For an NHL goaltender. So as Alex walks wow. us through all these masks in his career, there were there were quite a few pieces of history. The the Ozzy Osborne sign mask that he had that he had in, in junior that mm-hmm. he actually had to wear for his first year pro. The fact that he actually had to challenge this Canadian Hockey League, the CHL, to get an exemption to wear something other than an iTech, because his head was just too damn big and he needed a a better protection or a different fit of protection than itech offered and then he got one made up i i can't remember what that that one was it's in the story and then when he made it i know the came later in his career so um when he when he had it made up then he made an all-star team and itech showed up because it was going to be on TV and slapped a sticker on the back ear. So all of a sudden at least looked like an iTech. So just all kinds of (laughs) glimpses behind the scenes from Alex, including a pair of Swiss knee pads that at one point in the NHL, almost every goalie wanted to have. And, you know, I I think uh, the NHL probably uh, wishes none of them in retrospect had had them. Well, uh, let's stick with that
0: theme and uh, and Swiss uh, hockey. And uh, the tie in here is Michael Lawrence, who coaches with uh, Logano of the Swiss Elite League. Also runs a Pro Goaltending. You can follow him on uh, Twitter, at pro underscore goaltending. And his uh, Twitter handle is uh, wizardml. Uh, he's coached Elvis Merlickens in the past. Uh, also runs his own uh, goaltending uh, camps uh, on the, through the course of the season. Has uh, high aspirations uh, f- to take uh, his skill level uh, to another level. But right now, he's focused on his health. After this season in Europe, he's back home and he's recovering. From his bout with uh, the coronavirus and COVID 19. And we're, we thank Michael Lawrence for spending some time with us to uh, share his experience, what he went through battling the virus, and also a little bit about uh, the Swiss Elite League and uh, what they went through prior to the shutdown. Here's Michael Lawrence on Ingoal Radio, the podcast. So let's start, Michael, with uh, the most important thing. How are you feeling, and uh, where is your health at right now?
4: Uh, yeah, so, I mean, right now I've, I've been symptom-free for about three days. Um, during that time, I was, I mean, I've been home, I believe, since the 14th of March, um, and I was tested on on the 17th of March, Um and uh, I didn't get the results for, for a really long time, actually. So I kind of went through everything that I did um, not really knowing, but you know, at the same time, I mean, you know, the the symptoms were pretty obvious, but, um, but right now guys, I feel, you know, I feel I'm feeling better. I, I, I guess the best way of just saying it is, you know, I, I'm still dealing with, you know, fatigue, I think every now and then, but, I think if, if you get any kind of virus, um, you know, you're not gonna feel like one hundred percent, you know, of yourself for, for quite a little while. So it's kind of where I'm at right now and, and um, you know, just trying to get as much rest as possible and, and do a little more every day. Were you scared? Oh, uh, for sure. You know, I, I I think it's it's such an interesting time for us, you know, where I think, you know, you're not really, um, you're worried about all kinds of things. You know what I mean? Um, not a lot of that you can really control. Um, and I think that's why that this is such a, a scary event for people that are, that are going, we're all going through it. Um, but I think it's such a scary event for um, for people in general right now, because you just don't know how you're going to react. And I think that's what is, you know, the, the, the biggest fear in, in, in our society right now. You know, so I think that's uh, one of the, the toughest things about this, you know, and, and even if you have minor symptoms and you're going through those minor sy- symptoms, you're, you're, you're reading and you're on social media and you're, you know, seeing the news of how quickly things turn. So I think, you know, that can get into people's minds as well who are going through it. Um, and I, I, think that's, 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 uh, you know, a pretty scary reality.
2: How bad was it, Mike? Like how bad did it get for you? Um, as you were, especially just being at home and waiting on the results in terms of how the, the illness affected
4: you? Um, yeah, so I, I would say when, when I first got home, um, you know, I, I had a minor headache and I had, you know, um, I had some, some minor symptoms that I was feeling probably on the, you know, on the 16 and 17. And, um, you know, I was a little bit achy and whatnot. Um, they weren't tremendous symptoms. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, I live in Regano, Switzerland, which is, you know, it's 20 minutes from the hub of, of where a lot of this, you know, um, where things got pretty bad in Italy. And, um, you know, so, you know, in your mind, you know, you're, you're certainly concerned and you're worried, you know, and, and after just taking a flight, you just, you just don't know what you're going to encounter on on the plane either. So, um, you're, you know, um, but I think the, the most, I think where it got scary for me, Kev, was, um, I had those initial symptoms and then it kind of went down and then, mid point. So if I was testing on the 17th, I would say about a week from there, uh, things were getting, things were dialing down. I was still very fatigued. Um, but then there was two nights where, um, basically I like, you know, just getting up to the little washroom. I felt like, I felt like my heart was just going to pop out of my chest. You know, like I thought I was having a heart attack. You know, like it was really, really scary. And um, that's actually something kind of common that people are are, um, are, are, are going through. So, um, you know, a later conversation with the nurse, um, you know, um, was that if, if you're feeling those symptoms, and I, this is just a general message to anyone out there, um, alert the hospital. Um, if you do have the information that you are positive, obviously alert the hospital and tell them. Um, alert to hospital or the er and then go um you know i was lucky um but i would say to anyone that um you know if you're feeling these symptoms uh they can't be taken lightly for sure and um so i was a little bit lucky there and those for me those were my my two scary nights i think it was mostly where i was just feeling uh extreme migraines um i was having these migraines and then at the same time, I was going through the, you know, the heart stuff and, uh, you know, hot and sweaty and whatnot. And then things kind of just started getting slowly better as well. Um, but my last three days, I think I've been well on the mend, so I've been feeling much better. Um, today, I was a little more tired. Um, and through all of that, you know, you have a little bit of my, in my case, I have a bit of shortness of breath, which is kind of slowly gone away but when even you'd be talking on the phone you would you would have to take a big gasp of air because you you know your your lungs just can't take it sort of thing so um, for the most part that's kind of you know what my experience was but um, yeah it's pretty scary stuff but um, I think at the same time the more people um, know about this stuff and, and can identify hopefully it can help some other people as well.
2: I was just going to say, in terms of symptoms and identifying it, you talked about some of the ones that you went through. Um, you didn't go to hospital at the time. You actually hadn't gotten your positive diagnosis yet as you were going through some of the worst of it. Mm. Looking back and talking to medical people since coming through on the other side of it, do you think you should have probably maybe gotten yourself into hospital? that be something you'd recommend to other people? I mean, obviously at a time when we're all trying to be sensitive and, and not overburden the system as well.
4: That's such a, that's a really tough question. Um, And, and you're bang on, you know, you're, you're in my mind at the time, I think I was trying not to over, overburden as you're saying the system. Um, But at the same time, if you're feeling those symptoms, you know, um, it's not because you're having a panic attack. And to be honest with you, I think in my position, not knowing the results, I think I got into, I was thinking that I was getting into my own head. You know what I mean? And, and that's, I thought I was just having a panic attack. You know what I mean? So um, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I, I'm not a doctor, guys. I don't know these things. But I think I think if you're, if you're feeling those symptoms, um, you, you, you should not roll the dice. You know, and, and I think the, the, for, for the information that I had uh, at that time, at that moment, um, if I had the positive test and I knew that, I certainly would have went. You know so I, I think you know I, I think it's we're all trying not to um, to to grind down our, our system here medically and um, but at the same time you know I think I think people really have to listen to to their bodies and and um, to what they need and if you need the, the proper medical attention then you have to go out and seek it
0: Michael, you were transitioning from uh, Lugano uh, to uh, North America. Do you know how you came in contact with the virus?
4: No, I, that's, that's, the, that's the thing about this virus. I, I think, you know, uh, we don't know enough about it, obviously. And, and um, you know, it, it could have been from the flight. It could have been, um, you know, from, from, back, from back in Lugano. You know what I mean? Um, when I left, things were still pretty normal, you know, where people were still eating, you know, out for lunch and people were getting coffee and, you know, at coffee shops. And, um, you know, I, I can't say that I was, you know, not doing all those things. You know what I mean? So. Well,
0: normal you know, n- normal's relative because it's, it's interesting. Hutch, you pointed out that, that the hockey world had changed big time over there.
1: Yeah, well, Michael, I was just, just curious because we know as a way of looking forward, the NHL has discussed the possibility of playing in front of empty rinks. And my understanding is that's something that you've experienced. So we'd love to know about that.
4: Yeah. Well, um, I think some of you guys know about, we have these derbies in Swiss. And so a derby is your, your local rivalry. Okay. Um, I, I've been fortunate enough to, to be a part of this, uh, local rivalry in a special way in my last six seasons in the league um, because I've coached both organizations or I've been, you know, a goalie coach for both organizations, Ombry, Piota, and also Lugano. And um, our last game of the season um, was against Ombry. And anyone who's ever seen this or if you YouTube it or anything like that, um, you guys will see that, I mean, Take a take a soccer derby and and multiply that by you know a hundred and it's just this crazy event that um, it's really special to be a part of and um, from the fans and from the build up that uh, happens within the two towns you know they're forty five minutes apart um, that was <laughs> in a in a completely empty building and the only person which I, I thought was at first, I thought, you know, why, why is he in here? But at, as it went, I kind of found it more and more interesting Was with, with our mascot was the only, <laughs> <laughs> was the only person inside <laughs> of the building. But I, I thought that was, you know, just, just really symbolic to the time, you know, and, and, you know, the mascot was maybe overdoing it, but, you know, you could see that, you know, looking around, like where, where <laughs> is everyone, you know? And, uh, but, at least um, he had a mask and gloves you know, on. It was, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, but it was, it, you know, it, it was, uh, it was tough. I think it was tough on the players, you know, for sure. Because the, the environment is completely different, you know, um, the, you know, um, maybe, maybe it changes things for the players with their approach or, you know, um, maybe some, some players might even be better. You know uh it's it's a very interesting um, it's a very interesting thing to witness and and certainly um, with the the magnitude of the game and and what it meant and and then all of a sudden you know you're you're playing in front of no one you know it's um, I'm sure it'll be the same if if NHL teams um, go down that path I think I think there'll be a transition phase for for players who will have to uh,
1: did, did the players talk about the experience afterwards? I mean, I, I understand that a lot of professional athletes have actually come forward and said they wouldn't be interested in playing in front of an empty house, and not until everybody can come back should we be moving forward. What was the player's experience?
4: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's, there was... Uh, the, the interesting thing there is, is um, we had a player, um, Julien Beauclair, um, he, he spent a bit of time in North America. I don't know if you guys remember Jules, but, um, you know, he's with Ottawa and he, 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 he had a pretty um, outstanding career in, in Switzerland. Um, he was our leader and, um, you know, a huge part of Lugano hockey for, for many, many years and won you know, a few championships there. Um, that was Jules, that was his last game, you know, in his mm-hmm. career. And, you know, for a guy who, who, I can't, I'm not sure if this is right, but I think he played over 50 derbies or whatever it was in his career. Um, And that's your last game of your career, you know? um, You know, it was pretty, pretty strange circumstances, you know? Um, But, I mean, I think that's all over the board right now, you know, with... 20-year-old junior players. You know, with with players. Sure, or, or NHL NHL yeah. guys, you know, there's a very good chance that that was that was the end of the season. You know, I know they're, they're on hold here, but you know, um, I'm I'm sure that's not going to be the the last we'll we'll see of it. But um, no, I, I think I think guys had a difficult time um, dealing with it. Um, we didn't get the opportunity to go any further down the rabbit hole, unfortunately. Which um, you know, there could have been that adaptation maybe. You know, to to how Gant, how guys handled, um, you know, the change. Um, it was really just the one game, and um, you know, so if, if the NHL comes back and, and they're playing criminal fans, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure players will adapt. You know, at the end of the day, it's about winning. You know, and and um, and they're professionals. You know, they'll, they they'll adapt for sure. So, what was time. the
0: strange strangest part about that? that game, that moment that, that jumps out at you?
4: Um, I, I would just say the, the, the inside of a derby itself and um, the emotion that surrounds a derby. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very loud environment. Um, and I, I think, I think the guys even just had a hard time, Taking that foot, footprint, you know, away, and 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 seeing that um, the situation wasn't wasn't the same, wasn't what it normally was. Um, maybe some guys were better prepared than others for that. Um, but when you're when you're in a in an environment that has such energy, and and all of a sudden it's 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 gone. I think, I think for me, that's what made it very unique and, and, and strange at the same time. Um, You know, and I, I think, uh, I think a lot of players would, would have a really difficult time. You know, it's, it's basically like a, a Montreal versus Toronto scenario, you know, and and it's going to be a very loud, loud building and, and, um, you know, a very uh, tough, tough atmosphere for, for the visiting club to go into regularly. And, and, um, and you certainly lean on your fans in, in that sense, you know, and, um, and then all of a sudden that's, that's gone. Um, and I, I think. Well, it makes um, me wonder,
0: Michael, how, how somebody like uh, Elvis Merzlikens would, would do because you've had experience with him uh, in Europe and, and he's an emotional guy and gets uh, feeds off the fans and feeds off the environment and then feeds the environment. So uh, I'm just uh, trying to, to connect those two dots.
4: I, yeah, I know it's, funny that you you said that because um, you know I I think a guy like Elvis would probably um, have a little bit more of a difficult time without that that energy um, surrounding him Um, but at the same time I think that's also you know just on the flip of this I think that's also um, something that over our time together I think you know you guys will soon learn the more he plays is that, um, you know, on a, on a Tuesday night in, in Arizona or, you know, a, you know, an arena where it, it may be a bit quieter. Um, I do think he's obtained the ability to, um, to, to, to grab that focus, you know, and I think that's a big part of where Elvis has kind of evolved, you know, over the years, um, because that, that was certainly, um, you know, uh, an issue in the past. But I think at the same time, I think when the energy is there, um, he's no stranger to it either, as we all know. So,
2: <laughs> yeah. Do you, uh, how, to switch to happier note in the season that Elvis had or is in the midst of having, depending on how, or if we get a chance to finish here, how much, how closely did you pay attention to it, Michael? And, um, how exciting was it to see the success he had, especially here in the second half? And you know, if I if I know him and know you well enough, I'm guessing there were conversations back and forth. What, what what can you share with listeners who maybe haven't gotten a chance to see him, obviously as much as you, about you know the the type of goalie, the type of person he is, and and how much you've enjoyed this past little while watching him get to show the rest of the world what he's all about.
4: Well, I think I think that was the that was the. The, the cherry on, on the top was um, when, I, when I sat down with Elvis for the first time, um, we kind of went through an interviewing process and I don't think he realized at the time that you know, I was kind of thinking about taking the job and the gone things in, um, in uh, Europe are a little different. You know, I was signed for the following season halfway through my last year with uh with ombry which is not the same and obviously in north america north america you can't do those things but um i think when i first encountered meeting him there was this kid who really wanted to know if he was good enough to play on that stage and he had to work through immaturities uh, both away and on the ice um, and going through that process with him um i think he learned a lot i think i learned a lot and um you know it was really special to to see a guy who you know basically now he knows he can play on that stage and i'm i'm interested to see you know where that will all go you know and and he's 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 done a lot of work and and i think what a lot of people may or may not know Um, when you're in those, um, circumstances and when you're going through that transition as an athlete or as a person, um, you really have to face certain truths and, and Elvis had to face certain truths and as a, as a player, but as a person and, and, you know, that, that slowly evolved and, um, you know, seeing where he is now and, and, um, Obviously, the the relationship that we have and and the trust that was grown through those years, um, that's that's the best thing about everything.
0: So in in Elvis proving to himself and validating his skill set and his belief in his abilities on the National Hockey League level, does that in some way uh, do the same thing to your uh, belief in your career and your aspirations?
4: I think in in ways, yes. I think you, you, um, you know. My my thing as a coach is is. Um, I think every season you always look at yourself, and you're always looking at okay, where can I go to get better, um, you know, and um, you know. But the the reality is, a lot of the truths are always kind of um, right in front of you, and they're with they're with the players that you that you work with, and and I think you know all this allowed uh, myself to grow in in a big way um, because you know when you're with a, such a, a talented athlete like that um, you you have to take their talents and harness their how their talents and, and and obviously help them grow in those areas but then you've also got to be able to um, to disguise certain things that may not be you know their strong points um, and and help them um, understand in the right manner, in the right fashion that, that these are areas that you need to be able to get better at and you need to be able to set a plan in order to do that. Um, when you work with guys like Elvis, you know, I've described them quite often as a bit of a rock star. Um, you know you have to be careful how you do that. You know and um, you know uh, Craig Ireland used to say uh, you know you're, you're the lion tamer. Because you know Elvis had a bit of a short view sometimes, and we had to make that grow. Um, but you know, again, you, you kind of have to be careful how you you do that, and and at the same time, you you have to take those things where you feel are um, their weakness, but but help them grow. You know, and and there's a ton of learning that goes inside of all those things, from from personality to to talent to. Um, but at the end of the day, you really have to you have to be in a position where, um, if you, if you're working with high-end talent like that, you're going to grow, you know. And and at the same time, um, again, it's all right in front of you, but it's it's kind of how how you you place it and and what you do with it. Um, do you have an
0: example of this?
4: Ooh, well, I gotta careful. I don't want to, you know say too much, but I think, I think a lot had to do with trust. You know, when, when um, Elvis has had a different kind of life, you know, and, and um, um, he's had a tough, he's had a tough upbringing as a kid and um, he's not shy to, to talk about it, but you know, I want to be careful. Um, but I think a lot of that was, was trust, And, you know, I, I don't think we really got rolling until about Christmas on our first year think you would agree to that um it took a long time to to develop that trust um but there's no there's no quick quick way of of setting things free so that you know that you can work together and there's that ability to to read off each other and you know there's there's people have motives you know and and um i think he had to learn from me and i had to learn from him he had to know that you know, my motives were pretty simple. You know, I I, I believed in his talent. Um, I believed in what he could be. And I think once he understood that um, that genuine um, intent, um, I think that's kind of where things changed. You know, and and um, and we were able to do pretty special things through our time together. You know, in our first season, we were we lost one nothing to Zurich in game seven of the final. You know, and, um, you know, we had a great ride, you know, through that time and, and, um, you know, as not just from a technical standpoint, but also just from, you know, who he's become as a man, you know, but it, um, you have to be able to um, break down walls and um, it's, there's no quick fixes in doing that sometimes. And, and um, again, I'm tremendously proud of who he's become and, and um, he's a, he's a very special talent.
0: Before we let you go, just uh, we've talked a lot about uh, Elvis. Uh, just your philosophy on goaltending, and uh, and where you see uh, the the position going.
4: Um, well, for for me, I mean, I think it's it's very important that you you know you understand what you have um, when you're working with guys, and you understand the, the strong point of a of a goalie and um, and what they bring. And, you know, you you have to, uh, you have to harness that and make it, you know, clearly night night and day their, their strength, you know, um, at the same time, I think, you know, there's, there's always certain areas which can get better and, um, you know, allowing them to understand that in a, in a non-threatening way and in a way where they understand that you've got their, their back and, and that um, you're trying to achieve the same goal. I think that's a big thing about... Oh, that's my dog. <laughs> Bauer. <laughs> it, interview at home here. Hey, hey, <laughs> hey, hey. Sorry, guys.
2: It's, it's, it's okay, awesome. especially because his name is Bauer that and he's was, a golden retriever. That's yeah, perfectly that, acceptable. That was, the, the that's outstanding. Is, uh, yeah. You know
0: what? It's, it's, it's not a bad time to, uh, to wish you the best. And thank you for joining us uh, coming off what you've been through and this ordeal uh, throughout the hockey season. And, uh, and let's catch up uh, on, on better terms when everything's back up and running and, uh, and we can really dive into, uh, into the philosophies.
4: Awesome guys. Thanks for having me. And we'll talk to you Michael. Thanks. better, better Thanks. circumstances.
2: Thanks Michael. So ahead to thank-
0: Bauer.
4: Bowers pumped that he was in
2: the interview, guys. So that's <laughs> right We're not cutting it. We're not cutting it. He's staying in. Thanks, Michael. All
4: right. Be guys, good. Ciao.
0: That was a unique interview. Something we uh, haven't touched on uh, is life challenging. Uh, battles and uh, Michael Lawrence has, uh, has seen it all boy. And uh, you think about it, like Elvis is such a personality and we get into that, but uh, you go right back to the start and kind of gives you a reason to uh, be a a lot more cautious, even in this midst of uh, washing your hands and and taking social distancing so seriously.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, we, we were going to hope, we're going to hold and talk to Michael a little later about sort of his coaching and his career. And we'll, we'll get back to him on that. Um, because he, you know, working with pro goaltending in the summer and some of his experience as a pro which obviously we know about lickens, but number of guys that he's uh, had an influence on, working with the pro goaltending schools out of Ontario, um, you know, so I mentioned Jacob Ingham, uh, Colton Point. There's, there's, there's a pretty deep list there. So that was a conversation we had hoped to have with him in the future, but it just once I'd heard that he'd actually diagnosed positive, and just talking to him before we talked on the air a couple of days ago about just how. How much this beat him up and how scary it was at times. I thought it was good. You know, he's a guy that that, that felt it was. It's important for other people to realize how serious. Not that none of us are taking it not seriously, but just realize what it can mm-hmm. be like and what the experience can be like. And so, I really appreciate him as he's just starting to get his feet back under him and his wind and his sails, so to speak. uh, Taking a little time to chat with us.
1: Yeah, I was just gonna say. I think as we all get in our our close knit circles at home and we're avoiding the rest of the world for the most part, it's very easy to. Uh, Forget how serious this is, unless you're, you know, checking in, checking in every night with the nightly news. So it's it's uh, great that Michael's able to to bring it home for us to the goaltending community.
0: Uh, Matthew Garon available to us. We appreciate his time. Uh, Also, uh, goaltenders that are still involved in their playing careers, uh, becoming more and more uh, available as they experience this NHL pause. So uh, between the podcast, uh, Ingold Radio. And uh, the Ingle Premium uh, subscription uh, aspect of
2: it—it's uh, a busy time for you, Woody. Yeah, no, we've got uh, we got a couple of big names coming up here for pro reads, and maybe a little uh, quick chats as well uh, for the podcast. I've got Carter Hart set up tomorrow for pro reads, so if you're a member at Ingol Premium, you can look forward to his breakdowns on some of his saves this year. Kind of share um the mindset the the read that goes into save selections and depth selections and and why he plays how he does and the success he has i'm looking forward to that maybe grab a few minutes he's already been a podcast guest of course earlier this season but maybe grab a few more minutes for the pod and then hutch has got a big name coming up on thursday night as well
1: uh yeah thursday night talking to jonathan bernier um connected to him through our good friend marco marciano a coach in montreal development coach with the canadians and he works with uh he works with Jonathan in the summers and has for many years. So he connected us and had a great chat just uh, just last night with Jonathan. And he's he's up for a podcast and and some pro reads as well. I think one of the things I really enjoyed, I did the initial edit um, of the Jake Allen stuff this week, and one of the things I really enjoyed was the number of times I heard Kevin apologize for taking up so much time, and the number of times it was so clear, <laughs> the number of times it was so clear from Jake that he was just happy to be talking hockey and he didn't mind at all. And, uh, and I think all these guys hey. are chomping the bit to, to get back and, and they enjoy the opportunity to, to get back and talk about it.
2: You weren't supposed to see, that was the thing I even said, you probably, as you're editing it, you probably heard me say, Millard would think this is hilarious. The number of times well, I've said this, Jake, but just <laughs> one more
1: clip. We need a, we need a series of t-shirts that have Kevin's face and just one more question and probably on the back, more more it says yeah. Millard's going to tease me about it, but.
2: <laughs> so it's been, it has been pretty good. And we got to say thanks. Like Jake was, actually spent awesome. an, he spent a full hour going over video with me on Friday night and we'll be able to bring those. We brought the first one Angle Premium Membership. Uh, We'll be able to break those out. We've got Cal Peterson. Um, We've got, like I said, Carter Hart and Jonathan Bernier coming up. I've got some other guys in the queue, hopefully for the following week. And when you add that up, we still have a few left over from guys like Martin Jones and Craig Anderson and Frederick Anderson and Carrie Price. So we're going to be able to continue to bring you our Ingo Premium membership. Uh, these pro reads and these breakdowns, or, you know, I shouldn't say in perpetuity while this goes on, but right now it looks like we've got it covered um, for hopefully this as long as this lasts and beyond. So uh, an exciting feature, I think, at Ingo Pre- Ingle Premium that uh, we've started and I can't thank the NHL guys enough for taking the time to allow us to continue this, um, at a time when we don't have access to them at the rink. And in some ways it's, it's almost easier doing it over zoom. Um, cause we're both looking at the same thing rather than multiple cameras running. So it's, uh, it's been pretty good.
0: Oh, we appreciate everybody listening and, uh, subscribing and Matthew Garon with a shout out to, uh, he's a, he's a big fan of, uh, what is happening at Ingold Radio, Ingol Magazine, and Ingle Premium uh, right now. The Southpaw, with uh, some unique perspective on things, love the fact that he stays in touch with that Stanley Cup championship team and his idea of coming out and being so aggressive at the shootout, up to the hash marks, uh, he was very aggressive at it and, uh, and gave this shooter something to think about. So a Southpaw there, and whether you're coming at it uh, from the North or the South, keep your needle pointed in a positive direction. Uh, thanks for listening to Ingle Radio, the podcast.